Welcome back to the show. We're about to learn the secret sauce. Excellent. So, Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the secret sauce where we talk to founders, maintainers about their open source strategy, which you're like all the above. And um, I guess, can you just start with like, who are you? Who's Max? Yeah, I'm I'm Max. I'm the <laughs> founder and CEO of Stellate. At Stellate, we do GraphQL itch caching. We essentially built a product around GraphQL where we have a CDN that's based on fastest infrastructure. And we sell that to people to speed up their websites and apps. And the interesting nuance about our business, I think, in this context is that we're not an open source business in the traditional sense that most open source businesses are. So if you think of things like Superbase, for example, right, or yeah. Astro, they have their open source project and then they build commercial things around them. We're not like that. We have kind of very little to do with GraphQL itself, right? That's a technology that was invented by Facebook that they built for their needs and that's now been handed over to the GraphQL Foundation and keeps being developed there. And we just kind of build services for companies that use GraphQL, but our stuff isn't open source, right? It's very much yeah. a commercial project infrastructure, right? So the our open source strategy is really, we give back to the open source community. We are members of the foundation. We help with lots of open source projects. We recently revamped Graphical, amongst many other things. We have some of the people that maintain some of the really popular projects work on our work at Sailate, um, across Urkel, Pothos, many others. Um, but really our stuff itself directly isn't open source. So we deal with very different challenges than a Superbase or an Astro would, where they have yeah. to deal with, you know, we, we, we have this great open source project that solves a problem. What problem can we solve on top of that that we can commercialize? We have none of that. We are the problem on top of that that we commercialize, right? Uh, and we are just built around the yeah. open source technology. Yeah, and do you work with folks? Because like the Guild is uh, another group that does a lot of GraphQL stuff. Do you work with them at all in some of the stuff that they're doing? Yeah, yeah, we've spoken with the Guild Uri many times and many of their other engineers. We, we don't work on any of their specific open source projects because yeah. they're very good at maintaining those, but we definitely speak with them pretty frequently across the foundation, the events, the meetups, the podcasts. They they come up amongst yeah. many other folks. Yeah, and I, I want to get into more Stellate stuff, but I actually want to take a step back and talk yeah. about your journey through open source. So like, sure. I, I, I know of you through the React boilerplate. Like that was a, the first thing I ever <laughs> that saw That was a you long do. time ago. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, was that like the first open source attempt that you had or... I would say all? it was the very first successful one is the way Got I would it. phrase okay. it. It was the first one that really blew up. And actually, um, I think many people look at doing something open source as a way to further their career. Yeah. I never really looked at it that way. I, Whenever I build something, I always, I'm, I'm pretty lazy. And so whenever I build something, I just never wanted to do that thing again. And so I was always trying to find ways that I could extract kind of that thing and just push it up to a repo on GitHub. Uh, so that I wouldn't have to do that same thing again, right? Yeah. That was largely my intent. And I ended up doing that over and over. And like, if you look at my GitHub, it's, it's funny. People know me for like two, three open source projects, right? Yeah. But then they don't never look at my GitHub profile. <laughs> they realize that I've made hundreds, right? I have hundreds and hundreds of repos that nobody's ever seen before because I kind of just made them for me, you know? I, yeah. I never really made them for anyone else. But React Boilerplate was kind of the first project that really got popular. Um, and that was back in the era when people still configured Webpack on their own. Yeah. And so they copy-pasted these, you know, hundreds of thousands of lines of code, uh, Webpack configurations around. And I was like, I don't want to do that every time I build a React app. That makes no sense to me. Let me push it out to GitHub. And I kept improving it and adding more tools that I liked. And eventually that just resonated with people. And I remember waking up one morning after Christmas, um, being skiing with my family. And I woke up and my replay had gone from 50 to 500 stars overnight. And I was like what just happened, right? How, how does that happen? And even the, there's a tweet by me at that time about, um, does anybody know what happened? Why do I suddenly have 500 stars? And somebody has replied, you're in Hacker News. I'm like, cool. 
what's Hacker News? Wow. Right? Like I didn't even know what Hacker News was. So then I visited Hacker News and at the end it had like 3,000, 4,000 stars, I think. Um, and ended up just going from there. Yeah, and this was, um, you, you were actually quite young at this time too as well. Like you were college yeah. age. I'm calculating this through right now. I was probably like <laughs> 16, 17. Okay, right. Still, still in grade school, yeah. So Something like that. So like your exposure to the open source world, was it still kind of closed off? Because like you remind me, Austria is where you're yeah. from. So you're in Austria, 16, 17 year old, put something on GitHub, and then now it's on Hacker News. Like, so what was that experience? Now do you understand there's more people who are using your stuff? I really have one person to thank for that, that really shaped a lot of my philosophy, which is Nick Graf. Yes. He's, um, I say yes, because I've, I've worked with Nick and I'm very familiar with Nick, yeah. Yeah. For people that don't know him, he, he's the organizer of the Erect Vienna meetup and probably the central figure in, in Austria around React at the time and even to this day. And he saw something in me and really spent a lot of time kind of building up my intuition around what I should do, applying to conferences, making open source projects. He shaped a lot of my philosophy around how I work. And the reason I ended up making React Boilerplate and adding documentation and making it an actual open source project that could explode was because Nick Graf encouraged me to. Yeah. And then once that happened, he encouraged me to submit talks to conferences, right? So I went and I submitted talks to, I think, 50 conferences and out of those, like 20 accepted me. Wow. Right? And suddenly I had conferences every other week for like a year or two, just traveling around the globe, talking about my work, met lots of people. And that's really what kickstarted my open source yeah. mm, career, I guess, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And even like your your career as well, because like yeah. I do remember, so like fast forwarding, like you had React Boilerplate. Like I remember actually one of the guys who's contracting with us on a little side project uh, is a guy that we worked on the first React project at the job that I worked on a couple of jobs ago. And we used React Boilerplate to get started. Crazy. And so that's like very serendipitous to be talking to you now and talking about the story. Uh, but fast forward, you now are on the conference scene, you've done some open source. Uh, you also build like a CSS component, like, like style components, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know, we're, we're fast forwarding in the story, but style components was a thing. Uh, it's still a thing. Yeah. Uh, you still maintain it today or have you passed no, it? No, I haven't written code for style components in probably three, four years, I think. Wow. Um, style components is definitely my most popular open source project. It's used by probably millions of developers worldwide at this point built like websites for many of the big companies that you know are built with style components, which is very gratifying. But that really came later because what, what ended up happening is because I went to all these conferences and I talked about my ideas, people started coming up to me and they started being interesting in what in my thoughts and they started giving me their thoughts, right? Yeah. Which is kind of what happens at conferences, right? It's all about yeah. the hallway track. And so I started meeting lots of interesting people and getting lots of interesting input that prompted me to think further. And one of those people that I met initially was Jed Watson, who, who runs an, an agency down in Australia called ThinkMill. Yes. And he hired me to work on their open source Node.js content management system called Keystone, which is still around, still being maintained, and I actually switched to GraphQL and is headless and is really awesome. Um, and that through that, I met Glenn Mattern, who was the creator of yeah. CSS modules. Just random connections everywhere. And Glenn Mattern and I started talking about CSS, and that eventually led to us creating start components, the CSS and JS library, where we thought we could solve some problems that people had with CSS in React in a very novel and interesting way that would be easier to use yeah. across the board. Yeah, and uh, also style components. The original version of open source was like a CRM for my open source contributions built on top of style components. And the design system was very, like everything was style components. It was very elegant because I spent a lot of, I had a lot of free time because <laughs> uh, I do my job at Netlify at the time where I was working. 
And then I'd have a, a lot of free time to build some side projects on like a Friday. Um, so that's and before I, you got your kids, I'm guessing. Yeah, <laughs> before I had my second kid, actually. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't have that type that type of time anymore. <laughs> uh, but it was like a fun experience to like build elegant JSX and like have it in like a design system and style components made me able to write CSS and like we don't have to go into the details of how it works, but it's amazing because the I do this as well with other people in the hallway track. I don't have the time, so I'll just throw out a bunch of ideas and see if it, someone runs with it. And I, do, I used to do this with uh, my team at GitHub. Uh, we'd have like just regular one-on-ones or team meetings and I would just throw out a bunch of ideas and be like, who wants to pick it up and do it? And uh, yeah, we, we got to see a lot of things get shipped from other people. Cause I'm a big fan of like, I don't care who ships it and who does it, like, yeah. but if I can use it, I'm happy to like throw out whatever idea. And uh, I've got a lot of them. I think there's, there's a, a lot of wisdom in that. Um, the way I describe that for myself is kind of, I default to open. Yeah. I generally, most people keep things private and then they ask themselves, should I make that open? For me, I think about it the other way around. Everything's open by default. And only when I really, I'm like, maybe I should make this private, then I make it private, right? But I, I share my ideas, I share my thoughts, I share what I build, I share what I do. And that in turn has led to so many connections and interesting feedback because what happens when you share your ideas is that other people go, oh, that's an interesting idea. I've been thinking about this other thing over here that actually kind of connects in an interesting way. I wonder if we do that, maybe we get some more value. And then a third person goes, oh, wait, if you did that, then you could do that as the next step. Yeah. And those kinds of connections lead to really interesting and novel ideas. That's exactly how style components started, right? I just put my ideas out there and somebody else went, huh, Glenn specifically explained, that's interesting. What if we tried this or that? Or what if we did it in this specific way? Oh, that, oh, that, that feels really nice. Oh, interesting, right? And then yeah. eventually style components came out of that. Um, and I think many people don't work that way and it yeah. holds them back to a large degree. They're very scared of sharing their ideas and thoughts. Yeah, and that, what I appreciate is uh, like following your career and your trajectory and path, like I've definitely tried a lot of the things you've shipped and the stuff you've touched. Like we, fast forwarding again, like you worked with the Spectrum mm -hmm. project. Uh, which was Brian Lovin and, and Bren. I don't know, I'm blanking on Bren's last name, but Jackson. Jackson, that's right. Um, which I, I do with those guys from like design system, uh, not design tools. Wait, what's the design details? Yeah. That's the podcast. And uh, still and going. We, yeah, it is still going. And uh, it was cool to see what you did with Spectrum, which was like everyone wanted to chat about their open source projects. And you built a better version of Slack and a better version than Discord. Uh, Discord, Discourse is the uh, the one that everyone was using, and like a lot of the projects I contributed to were heavy Spectrum users. So, like, what was the story of that project? Spectrum actually came out of my own need. So, this is after I built uh, React Boilerplate style components. I was working at ThinkMill at the time on Keystone, and Bryn pinged me on Twitter randomly, and he was like, "Hey, man." We've been using style components for a side project that we've been doing, but we're running into some weird issues. Can you help us? And I'd been following Bryn and Brian similarly to you because of the Design Details podcast for a long time. Yeah. And so I told him, hey, look, I'm happy to help. Just give me access to the code base and I'll, I'll jump in and just look at, see if I can fix it. And he gave me access to the code base and that was Spectrum. <laughs> and I was like, no way, you're building a community platform for your podcast network, but I need that exact same thing for my open source projects over here, you know? Yeah. Style Components, React Boilerplate, all of those projects, they were using Gitter at the time, I think, which was yeah. a terrible experience. Nobody knew it. And the biggest problem was these questions that got asked just were lost in the ether, right? They weren't yeah. search index, they were just gone. And so they'd built Spectrum around the whole idea of this is search index and kind of publicly available. And so when people ask questions, they can Google them and find the yes. answer again. And I was like, let's do this. And so we founded a company, we raised a little bit of money. And then for one and a half years, we ended up kind of 
flailing around building product is the best way I can describe it. Yeah. But I ended up finding a lot of traction in the open source space, right? We grew to millions of monthly page views with zero marketing or anything, right? Like yeah. we had no marketing. It's our word of we, mouth. we were just building things basically yeah. all day. And eventually we were acquired by GitHub and it turned into, after a long journey, turned into GitHub discussions. Um, I'll actually talk to the audience here for a second because that space is still wide open for the taking, right? Nobody solves this. Communities nowadays, they use Discord or maybe Slack, um, although more and more Discord nowadays. Some of the more static communities use things like Circle, which is a forum, right? Okay. Um, but nobody has really solved building a platform for large-scale online communities around programming. And the thing that we failed on was we didn't find a way to make money with it. So that's probably the hardest part. You yeah. can get people to talk to each other, but then how do you actually build a business out of it? I don't know that part. But if you can figure that part out, there's a we grew on our own. So there's a lot of tr growth and traffic in there. Yeah, which is it's wild too as well. Because So I was just talking, so I do angel investment and I was talking to a, a company who I just did investment to. And they had like 2,000 people in their Slack channel. And like that was, and whenever, because I did DevRel in multiple places, I know when you have a lot of people on the Slack channel, it sounds very expensive to me. Yeah. Not expensive that you're paying, but time. And they do all of their sales, all the customer support, and it all gets lost in the ether, uh, as you had mentioning. But having something that you could search and find later, which is what GitHub discussions in the, they, I guess they found whatever that it was going to be. And uh, I push everyone to GitHub discussions because you want to be able to Google the answer yep. uh, and then find it. And I, I force everyone in my Discord or, or Slack to link to a discussion or to an issue or to a stack overflow or whatnot. But I do agree, like it is it is pretty wide open. I think that a lot of these communities tend to be like more creator or YouTubers or um, or podcast hosts. And I think there's, there's, I know one other project that's working on that problem, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. I think they're pretty early. Like they haven't really got a lot of traction. So uh, I agree, like someone, it, let me know if you want angel investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something in that space for sure. Um, yeah, and it started 18 months was between you getting a DM from, uh, was it Bren, and then acquired by GitHub? Pretty much, yeah. Wow. And a half years. Um, which that was a whole, the acquisition was a whole journey in its own because yeah. GitHub got acquired by Microsoft at the exact time that we were acquired. Yeah. So we had to go through due diligence twice, which was yeah. really annoying. But yeah. we made it through it. We were acquired. Um, I, I learned a lot from that experience. I learned that I really enjoy being a founder and I enjoy the agency that I get from it. And so yeah. acquisitions have come a lot less glamorous to me than they were before, if that makes sense. It's yeah. kind of like, I don't, I enjoy my life being a founder. I enjoy the agency that I get to really solve big problems for our customers really quickly. And after an acquisition, you don't get to do that. No. And so no, you, you can't, you can't, well, I remember some of your Slack messages around where you could deploy some stuff and uh, like the, the back and forth of like, oh yeah, you have to go through here and then the diligence here to then get approved and buy in. Uh, that's what happens when you get acquired by a big company. Yep. There was so much overhead to doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. Well, actually I do know because stars.github.com, which is a site that we sort of skunk works into shipping from our dev DevRel team. Uh, became a lot of red tape. And uh, when I was at GitHub, we basically circumvented red tape by just be like, hey, we're just going to ship this here until someone notices. And then when the whole Heroku thing happened, um, what, a couple of years ago, we had to like migrate everything onto uh, internal GitHub infrastructure. And that was a pain. Yep. Like it was just as a non engineer, because I, I didn't have the engineering title at, um, at GitHub. So I didn't go to the meetings or get the documentation on how to deploy on GitHub 
Kubernetes, whatever. Um, I think, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter what it's called. I was about to say the name. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it the name, but um, <laughs> anyway, trying to deploy there was like, it was, wow. Like, this is why Vercel exists. Yeah. <laughs> so we can like circumvent and speed things up. But so you left GitHub. Uh, I, I don't know how long you were there, maybe a couple years or, or whatnot, but you went to Gatsby. Uh, you worked there for a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then you worked in, I guess, at Gatsby. Did you work in the GraphQL space at that point? I'm only very cursorily, actually. I, yeah. I mostly worked on, I was hired to work on kind of the, the future-facing side of Gatsby, which was meant to be a visual editor for React apps. Okay. And so we, I spent a bunch of time with John Oltander and Brent Jackson and a bunch of people from the community trying to find a way to build a visual editor for any React app where you could go into your browser, you could click something, edit the text, and it would sync back to your actual code base. Yeah. There's a lot of trickiness around that, and we never got it to the point that was polished enough for anyone to actually use. Yeah. But the idea was really cool. I wish we could have made it work. Yeah. Um, is it somebody else is anybody else working on that same thing? I I've seen other I've seen a few of them. There's like webstudio.is, there's um builder.io, but that's more mobile apps, I think. There's there's a bunch of people out there trying this, but it's it's really hard to sync visual changes back to code. Like that is yeah. a really hard part. And that's why most companies like Webflow and all these website builders, Wix, they all use a JSON data structure in the hood, right? Yeah. They don't generate code, they just generate some data structure that they then render to code. Yeah. It's much easier to maintain because you don't have to actually go in and edit people's code. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we tried. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and Gatsby tried, now they're, they're, their home is now Netlify. Uh, so I guess I, my question now is like, so why GraphQL? Like, why are you in this space now with, with Stellate? The interesting thing about GraphQL is that GraphQL is meant to be your data layer for your whole organization. So yeah. lots of big, big companies like Facebook, Netflix, and many others use GraphQL as the single data access layer for all their data. And the interesting thing about that is when you solve a problem on the GraphQL layer, you solve a problem for the whole organization, right? Um, so for example, with GraphQL edge caching, if we can put caching in front of your GraphQL API, we've just solved performance, scalability, and cost in many cases for your entire organization, right? Your your, we have customers that enable GraphQL edge caching, the infrastructure cost is reduced by 30 plus percent, you know, some up to 80%. We have customers that use really slow backends, right? They, they use something like Salesforce Commerce Cloud where response times are 10 plus seconds, not even kidding for their web shops, right? And we turn that down to 50 milliseconds globally, right? And so you can solve a problem once and then it solves the problem for the whole organization. They never basically have to worry about performance or infrastructure or cost ever again. Plus minus, right? There's yeah. some. This is not entirely true across the board, but that's generally the idea, right? You can solve a problem once, and then it applies just to the whole organization. Yeah, and I guess my question is like, was no one else doing the the caching layer for GraphQL? No. Yeah. This has been. This is, it, it, and it's kind of weird to me, to be honest. This has been the main, or one of the main things. Whenever you look at any GraphQL versus REST comparison article. 99% of the time, they mentioned that GraphQL doesn't do well on caching. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the exact opposite. Because GraphQL has this kind of built-in introspection where you know what data gets returned from every response. Yeah. So when you send a query and when a result comes back, you don't just get a random JSON blob. You know that that JSON blob contains the user with the ID 5, five posts that they've authored with the ID 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? You know all this information about what's in the data, and you can use that information to do really smart caching, which is what yeah. we do. Uh, People kind of went, yeah, GraphQL doesn't have an HTTP cache. It doesn't work with HTTP caching because yeah. it's post-based. And so that's one of the downsides of GraphQL. And we kind of went, well, but 
what if we made it one of the advantages of GraphQL, right? Because you can cache GraphQL APIs better than you can do most REST APIs. If you do open API with really strict swagger and you, there's a, there's things, there's ways you can make this work for REST APIs, but very few people really do this and there's no products built around it. And we just built a product for GraphQL that works for any GraphQL API. Yeah. So, so it opens source, we've been using a lot of GitHub's GraphQL API because that's mm -hmm. uh, how we got started. It was actually the, the origin story is I built open source because I wanted to test the GraphQL API for GitHub. Uh, then I went to GitHub Universe and GitHub. I talked about specifically open source and how I use GraphQL API to build a product. Uh, and then they hired me. Like that's like basically my origin story. And, and then I just tinkered on it with like for the entire four, almost five years that I worked there. Uh, the last couple of years I tried, started building a real product with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my question to you is like, we use GitHub, uh, but we also have our own database mm -hmm. uh, that we have a little bit of GraphQL that we're starting with. Um, can we cache GitHub's responses yep. as well? Yep. Okay. Totally. Yeah. You can just put it in front of the GitHub GraphQL API and it'll be cached. The, the nuance there is that the caching is usually the easy part. The hard yeah. part, as people know, is the cache and validation. And the yeah. way most people do this is they have a database or they have a CMS or they have some data store where they get notified whenever things change. Yeah. And they can ping Stellate and they can tell us, hey, the post with the D5 has changed. And because we know what data is returned in every response, we can invalidate any cache query result that contains that specific post in 150 milliseconds globally. Okay. And so you don't get that with the GitHub API because you don't have access to all the changes, right? You yeah. don't know when the repository updates. Yeah. For some use cases, that's totally fine, right? If, you, if you're scraping data, like if you only need to get updates once every two hours, right? You can yeah, cache data which is where we're at. Like yeah. every 15 minutes to an hour, depending on like if we're doing Hacktoberfest or it's just a normal day. Day, um, every hour is like pretty pretty decent yeah, for us. So then you can put a cache in front of it, put a max age on it, and it'll just be cached. Oh, uh, and super fast. That's amazing. Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's wild that. So the thing that like I guess my gripe with GraphQL has been always been the investment of companies, but also now we have the foundation exists, so that's super helpful that we can actually see advancement in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But I remember like. GraphQL, like doing the GraphQL Summit, it's like Facebook had very low participation in mm -hmm. those. I think they started showing up years into that. Uh, but even like GitHub, like you spent a little bit of time at GitHub, like you probably know that GitHub's GraphQL API is like underserviced. And yep. uh, I, I honestly don't know what the future of the GitHub GraphQL API is. So the interesting thing about GraphQL is that it's a technological solution to human problems. Yeah. Right? The, the reason big companies are adopting GraphQL really rapidly is because they're running into scaling issues with their existing APIs. And GraphQL is a great solution to solve some of those human problems that you have. When you have many teams that are all accessing the same data store, they're kind of overlapping, but kind of not. They extend things here and there. GraphQL is a great solution to make that way more maintainable and solve kind of your engineering organization's issues. The problem is that people use GraphQL because it's a cool technology, yeah. right? And so lots of small companies or even GitHub, right, use GraphQL because it's cool, but not because it was solving an internal problem. Right? Yeah. But really, they should never have adopted GraphQL. GraphQL really only makes sense in a GitHub. It's used as an external API, but then internally, nobody uses it. All of yeah. the views are just written with Ruby controllers and models and just fetch data straight from the database, right? Then, of course, the GraphQL stuff is going to lag behind and somebody has to be explicitly employed to maintain it. Whereas if GraphQL is used for the actual purpose that it's meant for, which is being the single data layer for every data piece, every piece of data you have, then that data layer is automatically maintained. You never run into that problem because every team maintains the graph clip, yeah. right? Which is how companies like, Net like Netflix and also Facebook are using it very successfully. And it solves huge business problems for them. Um, 
but you have to have the business problems that it solves, right? And pretty much no small company um, or even medium-sized company really runs into that problem. And specifically where GraphQL starts being interesting is when you have multiple teams, when you have potentially microservices written in different languages, and when you have um, teams writing these microservices in different languages, right? For a full stack TypeScript app, you don't need GraphQL. Right? Yeah. You can use TRPC or something that works really well for that specific use case. Most big companies are not full stack TypeScript. That makes no sense, right? They have yeah. 50 different languages in the back end. They have four different clients on the front end. Like, and all of those clients and all of those, ser those services deal with the same data. And at that point, introducing that central GraphQL layer makes a lot of sense because it solves business problems for you and speeds you up. But until that point, yeah, kind of doesn't make sense, which is what Apollo realized, right? And to their credit, I, I think Apollo gets a lot of unnecessary flack in the open source ecosystem yeah. because they built a lot of open source and then they, they slowed down their open source investment and focused more on enterprise adoption. And it's because they realized rightfully that GraphQL solves problems for enterprises. And yeah. you can make a lot of money if you go to enterprises, if you can find enterprises that have the problems that GraphQL solves, you can go to them and you can be like, hey, we'll help you do this properly and solve those problems with GraphQL. There's a lot of money to be made there, rightfully yeah. so, right? And they keep still keep maintaining their open source stuff. It keeps getting better. I, feel like it's kind of unfair that they're getting a little flack. Sorry for yeah. ranting about Apollo for a second there. No, but it's, it's fair because I, I, I honestly see the flack that they get and like the sort of pushback on every time they do a GraphQL summit. Because I think it's it's a great thing they invest back in the community to get everyone in the same room to talk about ideas that push the community forward. But also, I see where the flack came from where they were the biggest company doing anything GraphQL and no one else was investing in it. And I think it was more of like, again, going back to Facebook or now Meta, it's like, you gave us this thing, which you don't even participate in the ecosystem. No one knows what to do, uh, which is like, example, Relay. It's like, yeah. a, it's a great technology, but unless you really dig in and like, are you been there since the beginning? There's like, you, no one knows how to use Relay. There's like yeah. almost no content and documentation on how to be successful there. Uh, but I've, I've used Relay on my blog. It's like amazing technology. Uh, and the thing I was going to mention is like persistent queries. I learned through Relay uh, to be able to do my caching, but also have authentication baked in, uh, which is like a very elegant experience. Which is how I was able to build what open yep. source is. But again, I open source, we saw the need because GraphQL from GitHub. And so that was always my use case was just like, use GitHub, this GraphQL API, build a product on top of that. Um, yeah, anyway, so I want to take a step back because you mentioned around enterprises, like absolutely genius of like starting a company to has a big problem that people actually will pay for. Um, seeing, like, so previously Stella was called Graph CDM. Yeah. And I thought it was a perfect name, Graph CDN. It made a lot of sense because like no one else did that. Uh, what was the, the catalyst for moving to Stella? It's a very limiting name. Yeah. You're called Graph CDN. There's a very finite set of problems that you can solve. Yeah. Which is fine because our initial prob pro problem that we solved was Graph College caching. Um, but even now, we're about to launch the GraphQL developer portal where you can put, um, you can put Stellate in front of a GraphQL API. You basically press a button and you get the same thing that GitHub has for their thing. You get API tokens, you can manage those API tokens, you get documentation for GraphQL API. You just get the whole shebang out of the box. When you call it GraphCDN, that product already doesn't make any sense anymore, right? Because yeah. you're a CDN, you're meant to be infrastructure. Why are you giving me a user interface, right? Yeah. That makes no sense. And so we realized that just internally as a company, we limited ourselves in the ideas and the problems that we wanted to solve because of our name. We discovered yeah. that we're like, we see a really valuable problem here that we want to solve, but it's kind of weird to do that as a CDN. That makes no sense. So yeah. maybe we're not going to do it, right? We need to find something that matches our name. But we were like, why are we restricting ourselves 
based on our name. That makes no sense, right? And so we went and we rebranded because we were like, let's just choose a really generic name that can mean anything and where we can solve any problem that we deem valuable enough. And that's where Stellate came from. And Stellate means star-shaped, which is perfect because if you think about a graph, yeah. every node is a star. Um, uh, okay. So that's really where it came from. And that's a lesson for next time. If you choose a name that's too specific, like GraphCDN, you're very locked into what you can do. Or open source. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> open source feels like a more generic name. I mean, yeah. you're definitely doing something with open source, but that feels like a broad enough yeah. problem space to be able to just pick the problems that you want to solve. Right? Yeah. It doesn't feel very limiting. It, it, Unless it, you're making sauce. In yeah. which case, you're definitely locked into making sauce. Yeah. Uh, sauce, uh, patent pending. We're <laughs> working on that. I did look into sauce.com, um, which is a $3 million domain. Uh, and Wingstop owns Jesus. it. Jesus. And uh, I don't think we'll ever pay for that. <laughs> but $3 million. $3 million. Uh, I did look into uh, Pizza Pizza just recently. Uh, $10 million. So just anybody, if you got $10 million, the delete our, <laughs> our next round. Uh, it's all going to a d domain name. Man, that is insane. Yeah, the, the domain squatting is a, it's a thing. It's still yeah, a thing. For sure. I mean, the, the dot coms are physically impossible to get. Yeah. Yeah, we did get .com though. Nice. Opensauce.com is a thing. Check it out. It, it works. It, we're just forwarding to opensauce.pizza. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned this thing that you, so the thing you mentioned is not shipped yet? Yes, that is coming early next week or two weeks from now. Okay. So by the time this video comes out, check it out. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like, um, so you remember the tool OneGraph? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I was a heavy OneGraph user. So we also embedded a OneGraph into our product uh, prior to me going and getting funding. Uh, we we basically down deprioritized the OneGraph integration. Um, but OneGraph was nice because it was a sort of aggregator of the multiple APIs, so like Twitch. And we had like, I think we had some Google APIs as well. And then GitHub was the one we used. Uh, I think I tested everything else. Uh, but what's your, so how's your, did anything you're building, does it have a name? Um, graphical developer portal, but that's just okay. The name for the product. You can yeah. get a developer portal for your graphical API. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's not the same, but you you basically no. choose what what APIs that you're you're yeah, supporting. It's, it's very much meant for companies. Like imagine if you wanted people to build upon open source, right? Like yeah. your customers can get access to the API and then build something on top of it. Okay. That requires a lot of stuff that you have to do. Right? Yes. And like API key management, docs, rate limiting. We ship all of that basically. So you put uh, in front of your API, okay. you click a button, you get a developer portal, you get docs, you get API key management, you get rate limiting, you get edge caching. Whatever you need, you just get all of it in one box essentially without having to build it yourself. Got it. And waste a whole bunch of time. <laughs> so we did build that, uh, but it was also powered by OneGraph. So we actually had to scale that back because uh, we had to rebuild it again. Yeah. But sounds like we might have a tool for us. Yes, absolutely. We should talk about that. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, one, OneGraph eventually got acquired by Netlify as well, yeah. finally enough. Uh, and turn into Netlify Graph, yeah. which is now also shut down. Yeah, I think that I, I haven't talked to the team about this. It, I think it was recently one graph shut down, like the end of March. Uh, so very recent. Uh, my guess is Valhalla, whatever that. Um, Gatsby. Yeah, Gatsby's acquisition, they, they might have a further along version, uh, but I have no idea. I think there's something in that space of connecting all of the world's APIs. I don't think that the abstraction that um, OneGraph had was the right one because what they were very focused on is creating, um, how do I say this? Like they, at the end of when they were acquired, right after building the thing for four years, they had, I think maybe 10 APIs in there. Yeah. Right, somewhere in that order. Uh, I think there was closer to 20, but yeah. Sure. Not a lot, right? How yeah. many APIs are out there? Millions, right? Yeah. So you've got 20 of those. It's not very useful. The usefulness of the tool comes from 
there being access to everything you need. Yeah. If it doesn't have everything you need, it's kind of useless yeah. for many people. And I think that's what happened. And my hunch is that they were so focused on building great connections between APIs that they forgot that they need to build an ecosystem around it that was built the connections for them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where Gatsby actually has a leg up with Valhalla because they have the existing Gatsby plugin ecosystem. So they have a plugin for Contentful, they have a plugin for GitHub, they have a plugin for every single GraphQL API you could imagine and every single REST API you could imagine, right? Every single CMS is basically already in there. And I think that's where they really have a leg up. It, it remains to be seen what Netlify does with it, but I think there's something yeah. in that space that could be really powerful that a lot of people would probably use. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this, that we, we went through a sort of a system like the, the Jamstack e architecture ecosystem, like it continues to evolve. And I think what we're seeing like is another evolution of it where people are solving harder problems and not just building another key value store. Because mm -hmm. like we saw a lot of that mm -hmm. um, where you could just like ship a quick database or quote unquote database, but it was really a key value store that was no SQL. Um, but now we get to see things like Planescale and Superbase that now integrate pretty elegantly into that system. But now the question is like maintenance. So when you talked about like whether you're an early company or you're an uh, enterprise company, um, the maintenance of managing multiple architectures disjointed or distributed um, can be very different when you're, yeah, when, whether you're large or small. So small is easy to jumpstart and get all that stuff done. Uh, but like we've even had the pain point, like we're a year since we built our new product and we've had a pain point of like offboarding off of like certain Jamstack tools because we just grew up too fast. Yep. And it's either build or buy and we, there's not enough to buy there. So might as well <laughs> build it ourselves. Yeah. I think many, I think there's kind of a chasm between the Twitter software engineering bubble yeah. and actual people that work at scale. Yeah. Those groups often don't overlap very much. And now having spoken to probably thousands of companies at this point that use either GraphQL or just have large scale systems at enterprises, the problems they face at the enterprises are very different than the problems they face in the yeah. early stages of building something. And a lot of these products that you see nowadays that are coming out are a lot more focused on the early stages, but then I doubt they scale to really large enterprise usage because those people just face very different problems that have to be solved very, very differently than the approach most people take. Uh, we're a pretty young industry, right? If you think about it, software engineering has existed for uh, whatever. 30, 40 years. Yeah, not very long. And I have no doubt that at some point somebody's going to find the architecture that works for everything. But it's going to be a while before we discover that, right? Um, just like we figured out how to build tunnels really well, right? Like yeah. That took a while. I'm sure the initial tunnels sucked and crashed all the time, right? Like that. But eventually, if you got, oh, this is the best way to build tunnels, then everybody builds tunnels the same way. The same thing's eventually going to happen to software engineering, potentially, but it'll be a while if it happens. And it might never happen because it just keeps evolving so rapidly, right? To where software development now looks totally different than even two years ago, never mind 10 or 20 years ago, right? Yeah. If that keeps happening, there's a chance that we never find that ultimate solution for everything. I think it's out there somewhere, but yeah. somebody has to find it. Yeah, I mean, like 15 years ago, you would have thought it would have been WordPress because that was a thing that it opened up the floodgates of everyone to jump on the web yeah. and have a space to to talk about whatever they're trying to sell or just have a, a community. And then we saw evolutions of that in the last 10 years since then. Um, but I, I agree. And then I, 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 it's like currently now it's AI, but now we're all taking a step back after this first six months of the, the AI craze and like, okay, well, this is never gonna last. This is cool, but that's not gonna last. 
And the person, sorry, the company that's winning right now is OpenAI because they built the infrastructure so no one has to train models. You can just benefit from the model. And I think it's, as these more pieces evolve, like AI, metaverse, VR, whatever it is, like as long as people can approach those problems and it's being presented easier for anybody, like if I go and had a code last year and I can ship a GraphQL endpoint uh, and then host it and cache it on Stellate, like now we can go solve something else. And I think that's the, that's the benefit of us getting there faster. It's like, okay, cool. AI will do that. And then I can have a better CDN, which is like, I'm blown away. Like 10 years ago, it was like the, the whole um, CDN infrastructure was still kind of still new. Like I think AWS helped us like think of what we could do. Uh, but then you have like all these other tools, like Fastly you had mentioned that you're built on top of that. Now you can just like go above and beyond like Fastly, I guess it's not going to ship their own GraphQL edge caching, No, but you are. And then now with GraphQL edge caching, I can build an enterprise that anybody can use no matter where you are, whether yep. you're in Tokyo or whether you're in Alabama. We love Fastly. <laughs> We're big fans of Fastly. Um, we, we made a big bet on them and it's paid off dividends. They build amazing infrastructure and that's what they're really focused on. And they're really, really good at that. They don't have the competency to build for application developers directly. Um, and so we are, we, we, we work with them really closely because we kind of push their platform to the limits, yeah. right? Nobody really builds a CDN on top of Fastly yet. We're kind of the, one of the few people that do that, I think, if not the only one. And so we are pushing their platform to the very limits and they listen to our feedback and build the things that we need because they're like, well, that's awesome. We don't have to worry about building for application developers. You know how to do that. Go build it. We'll support you. Uh, and we'll build, just keep building the best infrastructure possible and all the primitives that you need. Yeah. That's awesome too. It's great that you have a, a strong relationship and connection with them too as well. Uh, I did want to wind this down, but I wanted to ask you the question, uh, if someone, because you, you got started with like open sourcing something and then that led to something and that led to something. And eventually you started building stuff in the in public and you got a couple of companies under your belt and uh, now you're, you got a, a, a nice size company that will probably be much bigger, like in six months to a year as we, as we continue to talk. Um, but that, that developer who signs up for GitHub today opens up the world on their laptop. Like, what's your advice for them? Default to open. Solve your own problems. I see lots of people making open source projects because they want to build a career out of it. And they think, oh, I think there's a problem over here. I'm going to solve it. But they miss the point of the problem because they don't have it themselves. Yeah. The easiest way to build a successful open source project is to just build something and then solve your own problems that you have along the way of building it if there's not already a solution. That's the other thing that people often run into. They build something and then they run into a problem and then they don't check whether something already exists to solve that problem. They just solve the problem and they open source it. Yeah. And they're like, I solved the problem, but then they didn't check that something already exists to solve that problem. And yeah. I'm like, really, did you have to invent the 5,000th string padding library, you know, or whatever? Like that doesn't really help anyone, you know? That's not gonna, it's not gonna further your career. It doesn't really, it just, you just waste the time, yeah. basically. So solve your own problem, default to open and Write docs. <laughs> right, docs. That's the third one that people often miss. It's like they just ship code, but forget that you actually... When I made React Boilerplate, same thing with style components, I spent probably 80% of my time writing docs and 20% writing code. Yeah. Somewhere in that order of magnitude. Wow. Yeah. Maybe 70, 30, <laughs> but like way more writing docs than writing code. Code's usually the easy part. The hard part is explaining why and how to use the thing that you built. Yeah, we're, we're currently in the docs cleanup right now. Like we spent four months trying to build a product that people were buy and we figured that out. But as we were shipping features and testing out our API against other things, we didn't write any docs. So I would recommend like take some time out. Like even if it's like a Friday, 
like everyone, just write docs, like answer questions. If there's, if you asked a question, someone probably is also asking the same question. So like yep. add it to the docs or at least bare minimum open the issue. Uh, and then maybe someone else picks it up. Yep. Cool. Well, Max, thanks so much for coming out to Oakland and, and chatting with us. And uh, folks, stay saucy. The Secret Sauce is a podcast produced in-house by Open Sauce, the open source intelligence platform providing insights by the slice. If you're in San Francisco and interested in being a guest on the show, find us on Twitter at Sauce Open. And don't forget to check out Open Sauce at opensauce.pizza.